0: Please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 42 today as our text. But we're actually going to read a large portion of Scripture. We're going to read the entire sermon given by Peter at Pentecost, starting at verse 14. I'm going to lower this microphone because my voice projects and I don't want to scream at you guys. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Hear the word of our Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this to you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until until I make your enemies your footstool. for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42 And they devoted themselves And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's look to him in prayer once again. Immortal, invisible, our great God, who is all wise, who is only wise. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for your grace that is known to us, that is real to us who are in Christ when we open up the words and read your scripture. We thank you for your mercies that are new daily for us. We thank you for the blessings that you bestow upon us in Christ Jesus. Father, as we hear now your preached word as a means of grace which you have ordained that we may glorify you and honor you and be strengthened and be assured of our faith. We pray that at this hour we would see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you a very needy people, a very weak people. We are in need of your spirit, Lord God, to take your word as it is preached and pierce our hearts that we may grow in the grace and knowledge Of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be equipped to tell others about the joy, about the goodness, about the hope that we have in Christ. Father, we are weak because we confess without you, we have nothing. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word this hour? Would you be pleased with our worship? Would you work in our hearts to set apart the Lord Jesus Christ as holy? We pray for our little ones, Lord, that you would take your word and by your spirit change their hearts, call them to you, Lord God. Give them new joys, new desires. Give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen. So our text this morning, again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I've titled this sermon, Simplicity of the Christian Life, Devotion to the God-Ordained Means of Grace. Devotion to the God-Ordained Means of Grace. I say this because verse 42 starts with a word that's quite powerful in our day-to-day life, and that word is devoted. Devoted. So our our sermon is is going to be like this. There's four points. First point is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The second point is that they devoted themselves to fellowship. The third, that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And the fourth point is that they devoted themselves to prayer. In addition to this, I'll close with two points of contemplation for us. I'd like to begin with a little bit of context here. The book of Acts begins with the promise of the Holy Spirit and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his elect. Jesus orders his disciples not to flee to Jerusalem, but instead, not to flee Jerusalem, excuse me, but instead tells them to wait. In the first chapter, verses 4 and 5, where he says, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, that's precisely what happens. God the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son and poured out to men and women at Pentecost. Such an event was foreign to those witnessing what happened in front of their own eyes. Not to say both the Old and New Testament are not evident and clear with signs, wonders, and miracles, but something of this scale had never been seen. Acts chapter 2, 12 and 13 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they were filled with new wine. So the reaction by the, the people observing this, 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 this incredible amazing transformation by Peter's sermon, by the working of the Holy Spirit, was indeed mixed. Some were even calling them drunkards because they were speaking in their native tongue. Yet the Apostle Peter corrects this assertion in his, in his opening remarks of the sermon. Little did these men know the prophecy contained in Joel was being fulfilled right before their very eyes. Peter closes this sermon just like every preacher should, calling the hearers to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a a result of the preached Word of God, what we see in the text is incredible. 3,000 were saved. Some 3,000 souls were added. Indeed, this is an example of God doing extraordinary things through ordinary means. I want us to consider that. It's an example, the preached Word applied by the Holy Spirit to the hearts of otherwise hellbound sinners is an example of God doing something extraordinary through the ordinary means of preaching. We're going to revisit that point when we close the sermon this morning. Where I really want us to focus our attention is what the is is by looking at what the disciples did after they received the word of God at Pentecost. What what was the next thing they did? After a a, a constant problem with Christians is when when they first get saved, they don't know what to do. Well, what's next? Well, God's changed my heart, given me new joys, new desires. What do I do? I lived a lifestyle of sin, a lifestyle of debauchery, and now my heart's been changed. I know the Lord. I trust Him as my Savior. What's next? Well, I want us to see what the early church did. So that's where I really really want to focus our attention is verse 42, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So let's look at our first point. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So Wednesday night at Sovereign Grace, uh, I have the privilege of teaching through an Orthodox catechism. It's very similar to the Baptist catechism. It was just written by a different particular Baptist. And right now we're in the second section of the catechism dealing with the Apostles' Creed. And a few, a few months ago, I had a discussion with a brother, and, and I was talking to him. He, he's not really familiar with catechism. He's not really even really, really familiar with Reformed theology. And um, I talked to him, and I said, Hey, we're looking through an Orthodox catechism, and we're dealing with the Apostles' Creed. So the very, he didn't ask what the Apostles' Creed was. The very next question was, well, how do you know the Apostles wrote that creed? It's a very contentious question, but it's a good question. It's called the Apostles' Creed. It's a safe assumption that the Apostles wrote it. That's actually not what the Apostles' Creed is. It's not what the Apostles' Creed is. It's called the Apostles' Creed because in it consists the teachings of the Apostles. In this creed, in this early Christian creed, consists the very teachings of the Apostles. And in a similar way, when we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when, when we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it's kind of the same logic. They didn't devote themselves to these new inventions or new ideas coined by the apostles. What they did was they devoted themselves to the very teachings that the apostles gained from the Lord Jesus Christ and His public ministry. So it's not new opinion or new revelation, but rather it's exactly what the apostles learned from Christ himself. Doctrines such as baptism, or the Lord's Supper, or the doctrine of sin, or the doctrine of repentance. They not only learned these doctrines from the Lord Jesus Christ, but they knew in their heart that all these doctrines find their value and worth in Christ. Consider Paul's words to the brethren in Colossae. For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches and full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or again by Peter in 2 Peter 3 when he gives his warning in regards to those who were distorting paul's original message he says for the church to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ and really this is the this was the point of the apostles the the point of the apostles teachings were that they were christ centered they were christocentric they they always pointed back to christ and that's really the emphasis here starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to Christ. Well, that kind of goes without saying because their hearts had been changed, but what specifically what specifically what specifically, excuse me, were they devoted to? The emphasis here is on the preached and taught word of God. The importance here is that they devoted themselves to the word preached and the word taught by the disciples in their public ministry. And why was that important? Well, because they knew, they they witnessed the power of the word preached by Peter at Pentecost, and they knew it was there to, one, glorify God, two, increase their own faith. As we read in Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. They knew all that they wanted was the word of God preached to them. This was the first means of grace that we see in this text, the preached Word of God. That is precisely what what, what it means when we say the Word of God preached is a means of grace. It is a means for us to be closer to Christ. It is a means for our faith to be encouraged, our assurance to be strengthened. It is the way God draws otherwise hell-bound sinners to Himself Consider Paul in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek. It is very clear in Paul's writings that he knew the preached word of God. He knew the apostles' teaching. He knew the apostles' doctrine was used by God to change lives for His glory. As Sovereign Grace We have an abortion ministry where we go out and preach outside abortion clinics, usually twice a month. And something that we constantly have to remind ourselves is that there is a simplicity when it comes to preaching the Word of God. We must trust the Word of God preached because God will use it for His glory. And the prophet Isaiah says that. His Word will never return void. His Word will either go forth by the power of His Spirit and change the hearts of otherwise hellbound bound sinners, or it will be used to further their destruction. That is, the word of, that is what the Word of God does. And both, both instances are for the glory of God. We obviously want sinners to come to faith by the preached Word of God. So was the case with the brethren in Acts. They received the word and they devoted themselves to the word. They followed the example of the apostles laid out in scripture. They followed the example of Paul when he tells the church in Corinth, imitate me as I am of Christ. They were, like the apostle Paul, devoted to their Christ. They would die for him. And indeed, if any of you are familiar with church history, especially early church history, they did die for him. They were persecuted for them. That's real devotion. And that's why I I really want us to start with the understanding of what it means to be devoted to Christ. It means to do anything for him. It means to truly acknowledge him as our Lord. So when, when, I'm, when I prepared my sermon, it makes me wonder, am I devoted to Christ? Is the church that I'm going to preach at this Lord's Day, are the members there devoted to Christ? Or are they willing to suffer for Christ in the same way the early disciples suffered for Christ? Are we devoted to the doctrine that, that men and women died for, for us to be able to read today, that God has preserved? Are we truly devoted to this doctrine? As Reformed Baptists, another way to understand this is, are we confessional? Do we truly believe our confession of faith? Do we believe that our confession of faith is grounded in the Word of God? Because if we don't believe it, then we should want nothing to do with it. It's pretty self-explanatory. The doctrines that were expounded on are the doctrines taught by the apostles. If they weren't, they wouldn't have believed them. Do we treasure these doctrines like we ought to, is the question. So with our first point, we have the simplicity of the preached word as a God-ordained means of grace. The next part of the text says they devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. See, this is an interesting, interesting uh, point in the text, because fellowship today, I think it, it, it can become quite easy to others, but to some it's very difficult. To some, it's very difficult. Whether it's easy for you or it's hard for you, what you must know is fellowship is a crucial point in the Christian life. It is a critical component. That's exactly what these brothers did. They received the Word of God, and they devoted themselves to fellowship with one another. Acts 2.45 says, They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. I imagine fellowship in the early church was something that they just could not wait for. They just could not wait for. It's very similar. I use this analogy when I preach a sermon uh, in family camp. It's very similar to um, when you first meet that significant other that you think might be your future bride or your future husband. And you just can't wait to text them or call them the next day. It's that 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 eager desire to be with them. Well, this was the very same thing with the early church, but it was Christocentric. It was centered around the the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is sacrificial. It requires sacrifice from us. Time is sacrifice. In In order for us to truly be available to one another, we have to set apart that time and that requires sacrifice. Today we live in a society that's so fast-paced, it's so quick, that we, we look at time as somewhat of an idol, where we don't want to sacrifice it. We, we need it. We need to preserve every hour. We'll even sleep, sleep later so we can wake up earlier to have more time in the day. Time has become almost like an idol to some of us. In order to properly fellowship, we must sacrifice our time. But that's a good sacrifice. That's a God-honoring sacrifice. It's, we're so fast-paced that constantly we get, we get caught neglecting each other. We get, we get caught neglecting fellowship. Even fellowship with our wives, with our spouses, with our children, because it's so fast-paced, our life. But fellowship was so important in the early church, and it ought to be to us. And fellowship is not merely about friendship. Friendship. It's not merely about uh, having something in common with one another. It's about having the ultimate thing in common, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about friendship. It's about brotherhood. It's about calling, calling the person that you're fellowshipping with brother or sister. It's much more than just this, this uh, platonic relationship. The purpose of fellowship is and always will be found in Christ. It will be centered in Christ. These brothers in the early church not only shared what was seen, but also what was heard. The apostles' doctrine, the gospel message, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I stated earlier about the the preached word, the apostles' teaching being preached to them or taught to them, being Christocentric, the same goes with fellowship. This was the main common union that they shared. You see, many of us, I would bet that many of us have a common union outside of Christ. Maybe some of us enjoy the same sports like basketball or baseball. Maybe some of us enjoy a hobby or playing games. The important thing to understand with these, these kind of interests is this. Those things will die. They will end. A lot of people pick up a hobby and then drop it the next year because it just gets boring. A lot of people get tired of watching the same sports over and over again and it becomes mundane. But our fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to never be that way. You see, if God's mercies are new every day like the scriptures tell us, then our desire for Christ should grow and grow and grow by the ordinary means of grace. The greater common interest shared with your brother and sister will never end. The love for Christ that we have should only grow deeper and deeper until we are called home. And not only is, is fellowship essential, but to looking at, look at it at the negative side, neglecting fellowship is actually sinful. It's wrong. We see that time and time again in the book of uh, Hebrews, for example. Our third point is that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread in other words they frequently joined together in the ordinance of the Lord's supper as an ordinary means of grace and when you think about it when you consider the apostles teachings and the fellowship that they enjoyed together when you get to the when you get to the Lord's table the question really is well why wouldn't they why wouldn't they be devoted to this ordinance? Why wouldn't they wait and, 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 and really want this desire to partake in the Lord's Supper as a means of grace? They were devoted to the Apostles' Doctrine, the preached Word, the fellowship of the Word, and they too were devoted to the visible demonstration of the Word, namely the Lord's Table. Consider Matthew Henry who once wrote, the Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye. It is a confirmation of God's Word to us. And when we read this text, some have taken breaking of bread to mean that they were just sharing meals with each other. And they were sharing meals with each other, but that's not what the text is saying. I mean, when we read the, when we read the book of Acts, we see later in the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapter that they indeed were going house to house and sharing meals together. But the context is clear in our text this morning dealing with the ordinary means of grace. We are dealing with the very things that God ordained for the purpose of us keeping our eyes on Christ. And that is the point of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of what Christ has done for us. is to remind us that Christ is presently here with us today. And it is to remind us of the hope that we have in Christ in the future, our future hope. It is to assure us of our faith in Christ. When we look to the Lord's table, we are reminded of Christ's death on the cross for us, that he canceled our sin debt, past, present, and future, that he took our sin and gave us his own righteousness. We are reminded of that in the Lord's table. It is by this means, in addition to the preached word, that we are spiritually nourished and strengthened every Lord's day. It is by this and the preached word that we are assured of our salvation. You see, when we are doubting our salvation, Christians commonly look to themselves, look inward, which isn't necessarily wrong. We are are called to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. But when we are doubting our salvation, what we should primarily look to is Christ. Do we really believe in what He has done for us? That is what we see at the Lord's Supper. We are reminded of the finished work of Christ. Yet we know it is much more than that, it is much more than a memory. It is much more than just a mere memorial to us. As our confession states, it is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe to Him. So it's not merely reminding us of what Christ has done for us, but it's a reminder of how we should love and desire to serve Him and to want to serve Him. For if He died for us, should we not gladly want to die for Him daily? That is why it's important to partake in the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. I don't want to go on a tangent there, but that's why it's important to understand that. The believers in Acts were devoted to this ordinance. They were devoted to the breaking of bread with one another. Finally, our fourth point they devoted themselves to prayer this is one of my favorite parts this was one of my favorite parts of preparing this sermon because i think prayer is so undervalued within christianity today it's so important i mean we read if you read the early church fathers if you read the early church they were devoted to prayer hours and hours of prayer because they knew prayer changes things you know i was driving around Actually I actually work around this area some days and I was driving around and you guys have a lot of signs in Hemet that says prayer changes things and I think the text they're quoting is 2nd Chronicles 7 which I think I have in my sermon at some point but it's true prayer does change change things it's really though that God changes things through prayer and I think we would all amen that that's, that's absolutely the case But these brothers knew, these brothers and sisters knew that God ordained prayer as a means to communicate with Him. And in doing so, He intervenes according to His will daily in our lives by way of prayer. He intervenes daily. It's important for us to understand when we consider prayer this way of God's sovereignty, that He's in control That he's not just a genie. We don't just go to God and say, hey, I need this God. And he's required to answer us. That would make us God. But we must understand that going to God in prayer, he is faithful in answering our prayers according to his will. It's important for us to understand that that passage in Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Or the very prayer we see, at least reference to prayer that we see by Acts in his sermon, in Peter's sermon, referencing Joel chapter 2 verse 32 and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we're familiar with Romans 10, Paul would actually quote this in regards to the Lord Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans ten thirteen. These brothers and sisters in the early church witnessed the power of prayer in their own lives, in the affairs of others, and they trusted that this was a means that God used daily. Therefore, they devoted themselves to it. Consider Paul, again, an an, an apostle's teaching. Consider Paul in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. Pray without ceasing. That's what Paul tells the brothers in Thessalonica. Pray without ceasing. to the church in Philippi do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and it's important that we understand when we when we make our requests known to god that god knows our needs long before we do in a much greater way not only this we're commanded to approach the throne of grace Boldly consider the call to worship this morning in Hebrews. We are confidently to go to God in prayer, confident, confidently, confide, with faith, by faith, knowing that God will answer our prayer according to, to His will, according to what He sees fit. And Christ now interceded at the right hand of God is interceding for us, presenting our prayers to God perfectly, because as we also heard, Earlier, we don't know what to pray for. Quite often we find ourselves in that predicament. Dare I say daily, we find ourselves in that predicament, maybe battling with sin, maybe battling with wisdom, maybe not understanding what God has in store for us at work. We constantly don't know what to pray and we're cautious of how we should pray and we should be. But we should confidently know that Christ is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. It's important also that we know that we're not alone in prayer. That we're not alone in prayer. And this, there's many reasons why that's important. Two that I can think of that are paramount is one, that God is always with us in prayer and two, that when we pray to God we ought not hide our sin from God. Because we're not doing that. We can't hide our sin from God. We can actually hide nothing from God. So even when we pray, God knows the intentions behind our prayers. Paul reminds us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in prayer when he writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray for, what we should be doing is praying the Word of God to Him, reminding God of His promises to us, which are yes and amen in Christ. When we don't know what to pray for, we ought to search the Word of God to see what God would have us pray for, reminding God of who He is. He is holy, He is just, He is righteous. And when we say those things, when we pray those things, we're not telling God something He doesn't know. We are reminding ourselves of what we constantly forget, the very character of God. Another example is by looking at our history, looking at the the, the history of the Reformation and the history of the early church, seeing things like the Valley of Vision, which are... Uh, um, a collection of Puritan prayers that show, show an example of how the men of old have prayed and follow those examples, right? There's nothing wrong with following the example of a man if that example is Christ-centered. If you think that there is, then you'd have to ask what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. When he tells a church in Corinth to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So these brothers were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And they weren't just devoted to prayer in private worship. They weren't just devoted to prayer alone. They were devoted to prayer corporately. They were devoted to prayer with one another. When the text of Scripture says that they went from house to house, or they, or they gathered together in the temple, do you think they weren't praying? Of course they were. They were asking one another, what, can I, what, what are some of the things I can pray for you regarding? They were devoted to prayer. They prayed for their meals. They prayed for their fellowship. When they received encouraging news, which Paul presented much encouraging news to the churches he wrote to, they rejoiced and thanked God. They were devoted to corporate prayer, prayer in temples, prayer for the preached word, prayer for the church church, as a whole. One commentator says, They were devoted not only in their closets, in their families, but in the church, in the public prayers of the church. They observed all opportunities of this kind and gladly embraced them. I would submit to you this morning that this kind of devotion is only possible when your foundation of prayer is is rooted in the Word of God. For the same reasons, we ought not neglect the Lord's table, or the preached Word, or fellowship with one another. We ought not neglect prayer. So our two points of contemplation are two points of contemplation. In closing, the first point is the written Word of God rules. The life of the church. And this was really, the tone for this was already set this morning with Sunday school. The written word of God rules the life of the church. To read our confession of faith, the supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, and individual. Interpretations. All this should sound familiar for those of you who are in Sunday school. And those in whose judgment we are to rest is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. This is what it means to be sola scriptura. The early church received the word of God preached, enjoyed sweet fellowship with, Over the Word of God, committing themselves, committed themselves to partaking of the Word of God by sacrament and prayed the Word of God earnestly. That's devotion. That's true devotion, folks. The Word of God applied by the Holy Spirit directed their path. And when we think of Ephesians referring to the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit, that would make total sense. So, our challenge in 2019 is quite simply this. Are we submitting ourselves to the Word of God? Are we truly submitting ourselves to the Word of God? When we, when we think of this corporately, is our worship rooted in the Word of God? When we think of our leadership in our church, is the preacher, is the elder submitting themselves to the Word of God or submitting themselves? to the Word of God. And then, most importantly, are we submitting ourselves individually as the ones that Christ redeemed? Are we submitting ourselves to the Word of God? Are we preparing our hearts for worship on the Lord's Day? As husbands, are we loving our wives like Christ loves the church? As parents, are we we raising our children unto the fear and admonition of the Lord? Are we examples of Christ who submitted Himself to the Word of God perfectly? If not, if not, it's not simply that we're doing Christianity wrong. If we're not submitting ourselves to the Word of God, It's not simply that we're doing Christianity wrong. It's that we are failing to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are greatly missing out. God gave us his word and we, as his people, have an obligation to submit to it because we love God. For who he is, for what he's done, and for what he will do for us. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Our second point in closing, our second point of contemplation. God does extraordinary things through ordinary means. God does extraordinary things through ordinary means. I don't want to confuse us in saying, in in thinking rather, that the means of grace, that God's grace is just ordinary it's not it's not at all the point here is to say that what God does for his glory using the ordinary means of grace that he has ordained is extraordinary it is extraordinary we should have got that from the text right away and if we didn't I'm going to go ahead and repeat it so a couple examples The first being that God uses his preached word to bring otherwise hell-bound sinners to repentance and faith in him. He changes the heart, gives new joys, gives new desires, and doesn't leave them alone. He pours out his spirit on them. That is extraordinary. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the grace of, of God. We deserve the judgment of God. We don't deserve the love of God. We deserve the wrath of God in our sin. Yet God is gracious by using His Word. God takes a man who is once persecuted by... who once persecuted Christians to the point of death, to the point of public execution. He takes that man, blinds him literally, opens his eyes, and then uses him to write most of the New Testament. The apostle Paul. That's extraordinary for God to do that. It is extraordinary. Or Peter's sermon, our example today. Three thousand souls were added. Three thousand souls were added. How is going from around one hundred and fifty to three thousand one hundred and fifty ish? How is that not anything but extraordinary? How do we not read that in the text of Scripture, believing what the Word of God says, and walk away thinking, well, that's kind of cool. No, that's amazing that God would do that. It's amazing that God's grace would be that abundant in that short period of time. And God does it for His glory. God answers our prayers. When we pray to God... And maybe that hour, maybe that day, maybe that week, maybe that year, God answers that prayer. That is extraordinary. It is an absolute blessing that we can even communicate with God in prayer. But that He would answer our prayers according to His will is amazing. And He does it for His glory. And He does it for His glory. When I come up and preach a sermon, I hope that it is glorifying to God. I hope that God uses it for His glory. And we should have that same mentality when we devote ourselves to the Word of God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on the form of flesh, lived a holy, righteous, obedient life, only to be put to death as if He had sinned, yet He was indeed without sin. And when we consider the cross, when we are reminded of the cross, we see clearly Your love in abundance and Your hatred for sin. And we thank you, Lord, that death was not the end for the Lord Jesus Christ, but that he beat death, rising from the dead, and now is ascended at your right hand, interceding for all those who call upon his name. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can gather here this Lord's Day and worship you we give you thanks in Jesus name amen